Good morning, Misfits. You are tuning in to episode 14 of the Misfit Project. Yeah, I'm your host, Drew Crandall. Across from me at the table is Ted, as always. Ted, how are you doing on this 54-degree day Man, in Maine? loving the sun. The sun is showing its face for the first time in months here in Maine, and it's, uh, it's great. Speaking of temperature, yeah, no this kidding. is Hot and Cold, Volume 1. Hey, hey. And what happened here with hot and cold not being volume one of one is I dug back into the notes that I had on hot exposure and cold exposure and went down the rabbit hole on hot first and realized that um, this needed to be two parts. So this is essentially all about hot exposure. There will be some cold stuff brought into it and Ted and I can speak a little bit to our, um, to our experiences with it, but uh, for the purposes of the information here for volume one, it will be mostly heat exposure. So um, volume two we'll do here pretty soon and just jump right in. Not a lot of, you know, dilly dallying around. Yeah. Get right to it. Yep. So before we talk about how this all works and what's going on with it, what experiences have you had with both hot and cold exposure? So I, I've done a bit of both. I don't have any like scientifical data with numbers yeah. and all that jazz. But um, at my house currently, I have a wood fire sauna. Um, so I've done quite a bit of hot exposure. Uh, I know that I've done some reading and, you know, there's there's some studies that show, you know, white blood cell increase or red blood cell increase with exposure to heat uh, kind of directly following uh, workouts. Yep. Um, I've never done that level, um, right. but every time I've done a sauna, it's been, you know, 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the day mm-hmm. and the temperature in the, in the sauna. And, uh, I know I feel great after get that sweat going. And what and does, um, what does the temperature get to in a sauna like that? So the wood fire sauna, it's not super hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're usually right around one forty. That's one, still pretty good though. Yeah. Uh, at its peak. And then it kind of settles down depending on you know what the weather outside is right because um, it is outdoors uh, but 125 I'd say is probably that mm. average right that average area um, but you know it's it's hot enough to get a good sweat right for sure uh, and then the added bonus is during the winters uh, one thing that I really like to do is is break that sweat step outside for five to ten minutes especially on the really cold nights it kind of stops that sweat process yeah and then jump back into it afterwards. Yeah. It's, it's a really good. A lot of the mix. research on um, increasing growth hormone was two sessions and it was broken up by a cooling off period. Yep. And I don't know if they did that to accumulate more time without the people freaking out right. or what, but it definitely adds the, it adds the time that you can like comfortably stand being in the sauna right. when you break it up like yeah. that. Um, what about cold? Well, uh, you know, it, there's a real special part of living in Maine when yeah. you wake up early and you, you make your coffee and then you saunter out onto the back porch or in the backyard yep. without your shoes, no shirt, no pants, just in your boxers and, and stand out there for five minutes with, you know, the snow on your feet and the cold air all over you. It's, uh, it's, it gets your day started yeah. for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I've done quite a, quite a bit of that. Um, not as much this winter as last, but, but it's, a. Uh, a really good way to jumpstart your brain specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Now what about any cold tub, cold shower? Have you dabbled in anything like that? Yeah. I, uh, I did a, a there was a period of probably three or four months last year, uh, in January where I did a cold shower before bed every night. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't know that before bed is necessarily the right time according to studies or whatever, but it was, like a five minute cold shower. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would start with a hot shower first to like do my cleaning and be comfortable that way. Yeah. Um, but it was always five minutes cold shower before, before bed. And it was really cold. Like really, really fucking cold. So the, the research on, um, using cold showers to get our core temperature down, to get into deep sleep faster, uh, shows that it's that, I don't even know if lukewarm is the right one, the right word for it, but it's that like, oh, this is cold, but yeah. not like, whoa. Not like frigid, shivering cold. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because if you get too far into that category, then you're really kind of jumping into that sympathetic nervous system a little bit. 
Um, but I have recommended for a lot of people that struggle with that temperature control, doing the, taking a shower before they go to bed and finishing with, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of like, oh, okay, this is cold yeah. kind of a thing. Because I think a lot of people like the, the like grogginess feeling of a hot shower, a hot bath before bed, but then your body's like, it's doing keeps, its best to cool down. Exactly. Yeah. It's trying to get into deep sleep and it keeps kicking you back into REM. For me, I would say that I'm definitely more um, just based on what I have at my disposal into the cold exposure. Yeah. Um, in you know, being in Maine with the snow and then I'm, you know, on a well, well water in Maine is, oh yeah, it's cold. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's almost completely subjective well-being. Like if I take a cold shower in the morning, I legitimately feel better for the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's one of those things where I think it's important for people to understand, like we're really going to take a deep dive, probably the deepest dive we've done so far into the mechanisms behind all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, like just knowing that if I do that, I feel better is kind of good enough for me. And on the side of the heat, um, I do some pretty ridiculous heat wise, uh, Epsom salt baths and my bathroom is small enough that I can steam the joint up pretty good. So it's to the point where like I'm in it. And if like my wife walks in and she puts her hand in it, she's like, how the hell are you in there right now? The problem with that is if it's too far into the night, it is really hard to get my core temperature down. Yeah. But what I've noticed is in scenarios where people complain about how hot or how cold they are and how uncomfortable it's making them, I don't really feel it in the same way. Yep. So I can tell that it's not just the cold exposure. I'm doing some form of heat exposure because my thermoregulation is a little better. And that's one of like the main things that hot and cold exposure do for you is it your, your thermostat works a little bit better. Yeah. And I mean, I found that a lot with the, the cold shower. There's this kind of initial phase of, oh, fuck, this is so cold. I need to stop this. But if you push through that kind of initial like mental panic. Oh, yeah you settle in and it it becomes much less uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and specifically, if you use your breathing, like yeah. focus on the breathing that you're doing rather than focusing on how cold or how hot something is. Right. Uh, and you you kind of push through that initial phase. It It's easier. Yeah. It gets easier. Yeah, definitely. And and it'll be really easy for us when we do volume two to put out like a, like a two-week cold exposure challenge because everybody's got a shower. The yeah. problem with this, this heat episode is when we get to the end, we have to talk about how to pull it off. Yeah. Like where would you have access to a sauna yeah. to try to pull all of this off? So, um, one of the, one of the big concepts that we talk about all the time, whether people are aware of it or not, is this concept of hormesis. And that's, um, essentially stressing out our cells, but doing it on purpose and not overdoing it and having them rebound and regrow and adapt to make us, um, you know, stronger, more vigilant, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's how it works with strength, strength training, endurance training, hot exposure, cold exposure, um, even being exposed to, you know, different, um, uh, you know, types of things that would make you sick. Like your body can take a certain amount of them in and then adapt and become stronger. Um, which, which I think a lot of people can understand It's kind of that theory behind like vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. So with, with evolutionary biology, I don't know the, the exact mechanism of how, you know, how did this all get started? But if we, if hormesis wasn't a thing, then evolution couldn't have happened. There would have been no way for us to grow and change. And yes, um, different variations of, if, you know, if you took human beings, yes, a, uh, parents could give birth to like a stronger human, but if that was the only means of it, it would have been a lot slower. So we're actually the, the concept of the epigenetics is like, we're actually changing while we're alive, right? Not just trying to create a better like offspring. Yep. And you can understand why these things work and why we would need to tap into them now. If you just think about the fact that we used to have to be so much more robust as human beings, just to survive, just to survive. Yeah. You can understand why if we stopped being exposed to hot and cold, 
how something could happen and how something could change from that and how the people that were better at that were the ones that did evolve, the ones that did stay around sort of that survival of the fittest. So I just think that anytime we get into this, you know, evolutionary biology and, you know, the, the, the side of medicine now that's, you know, going a little bit more towards ancestral health, just understanding sort of where it comes from and why we'd want to do it. Cause we moved inside a long time ago and then air conditioning you know, heating, all this stuff. Insulation. And and that's, you know, nothing that I'm currently willing to give up. No, it's, it's nice. It's nice. <laughs> right. Um, can you, I mean, you just think about like your work day, trying to get through your work day. If you were drenched in sweat, well, we do know what that's yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> From our old office. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but, especially in the summer. I mean, can you imagine living in Texas during the summer without air conditioning? No, no. I mean, you go do it, but you go to Arizona and Texas and you go into the, the like low income as low income as it gets. And they have air conditioning. They all Priority. do. Like you have to you need it. Exactly. So, um, when we, when we move forward now, sort of the order that I want to take here is you've got the stats and the numbers and like, what is this actually doing? This would be like the clickbait, the like headlines of what this is doing. Then it's, how does that actually work? That's sort of the science behind it. Um, and I really, I know I say this every episode, but it's more, even more important on this one. I really want feedback from the people that listen a lot. I would really like to hear from people like, hey, it was nice to get out a notebook and write this stuff down. Or, come on, man. Like, you're talking to me about brain drive, neurotropic factor, and things of that nature. Like, are people into this? Would people like, you know, the longer version, the shorter version, whatever it is. So if you listen to this regularly, and I know a lot of you already know that if you shoot us a direct message on Instagram, you will get a response. Um, I would love some feedback on this because we were talking about it before we got started. There's, there's, a, we have a nice little outline uh, you could say to this episode. So essentially what I'm looking to do here is we have the statistics, the science, how we're supposed to do it. And then I always like to circle back to just the, like the anecdotal evidence of the stuff that Ted and I already talked about a little bit and just that like sort of intuitive feeling of making sure that these things work for you guys. So there's a bunch of different ways to um, categorize what we're talking about today, but I'm going to use the terminology heat acclimation a lot. Um, that was the one that really kind of stood out to me because in all of these studies and research papers, it's broken up into a bunch of different categories with names, but they all sort of mean the same thing. And this is, is going to be primarily about sauna use. Um, and we'll get to this in the end, but there's definitely a correlation, not necessarily causation, but almost all of these super successful um, scenarios were a dry sauna. So that's going to be, they have the ones with the little panels in them. And then they have the ones with just the infrared, like heating unit. Right. Right. Um, and I don't know if that has something to do with the steam, making you feel like you're hotter than you are. So you can get to exhaustion quicker with the steam. I'm not really sure, but I do know that like when I'm in a sauna, I'm usually pretty comfortable until I start dumping a lot of water on oh, there. Man. And that's when you're like struggling to breathe. Yeah. And, and a lot of these studies are, they, they put them in there until exhaustion. So you can understand how if it was dry, they might make it a little further. Yep. That um, makes sense. So a lot of that's sort of built in there. So again, this is going to be like a quick run through of the statistics and then we'll jump into the science. Um, this first one, really important. A lot of athletes listening to this, athletes exposed to heat acclimation use 40 to 50% less mu muscle glycogen compared to previous. And that's so important because you have this endurance factor that's built in and the whole like running to exhaustion is something that they test a lot. And then you have the, um, sort of the, the, the term I believe that's used in the endurance community is bonking, um, where you're running and then glucose is gone and you're kind of screwed. Is that like point of failure? Yeah. Kind of thing? Yeah. And in, in the, that specific term that they use, they directly correlate to like glycogen because the endurance community is still very big on like carb loading yeah. and things of that nature. So even if you didn't switch to a fat adapted situation, you're using 40 to 50% less of that muscle glycogen. So in theory, 
you would bonk at a later later, later situation, which yep. is really cool. Um, two 30-minute sessions of heat acclimation per week resulted in a 32% increase in running endurance. And the way that they do that is they have them run at like their race pace until they're like, I can't do this anymore. They run to, to exhaustion. And typically you'll see um, like an example of that would be when you see the people on the treadmill with like the thing hooked up to their face and they're like, go. They set it to a number and they're like, go. And then they're like, hey, I'm going to fall off the back of the treadmill. <laughs> this is enough. I can't do this anymore. That would be that sort of situation. Same study. We had an 8% increase in blood plasma volume, which we'll get into in a second. Really important. And a 4% increase in red blood cell count. So two 30-minute sessions per week, which sounds very doable to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, this was not based on timing like some of the other studies were. So as far as I know, two 30-minute sessions is two 30-minute sessions. It's whenever not, you fit them in. Whenever you can yep. do it. One 30-minute session correlated to a 30% increase in muscle growth for up to 48 hours after treatment. And we will once again dive into what's going on there, how that works. This is really important for people that might have an injury. Um, the sauna is huge for holding on to muscle mass. That's, that's one thing that's really important. This next one is pretty crazy. And we'll get into the how and we'll get into what it's going to do for you. But I have this broken down into growth hormone increases, two 20-minute sessions. And those were actually back-to-back. So 20 minutes, cooling off period, 20 minutes, doubled the baseline growth hormone increase. Double sounds nice. Two 15-minute sessions that were done at a little bit of a higher temperature, I believe it was 176, five times. And then this next one, no one's going to do this, but what's nice is we can draw really strong, powerful correlations from it. Two one-hour sessions a day for seven days resulted in a 1,600% increase, 16 times the baseline growth hormone Good was released by wow. sitting in the sauna for an hour, getting out for a cooling period, getting back in it for another hour. So here's, here's, what, we, here's what we can right take there. from that. We've got a two times, we've got a five times. The five times study sounds nice to me because you've got the 15-minute intervals, which not that big of a deal, and a little bit of a higher temp, which I can't speak to. Um, but I've been in like one of the saunas that we did, um, a few years ago in Iceland was like, you were very uncomfortable the second you walked in there. Right. And there really just was a way because I'm used to breathing exercises and meditating to like kind of shut that off. It was almost worse at the beginning than it was after that. And then people were like, Hey man, we should probably leave. And I was like, okay, sounds good. It was funny too. There was actually side note. There was actually a cold tub there, and Sherb could not do the hot or cold. I love that cold tub. It's intense. It's super cold. It is. It feels like you're slipping into an ice cube. It does, but it's liquid. Yep. It's I like it. I like it a lot. So the growth hormone thing, whoa, big deal. And for anybody out there that's you know thinking of exogenous growth hormone, that's not what this is. This is endogenous. This is the stuff that's supposed to be produced in your body through things like exercise and heat exposure and getting into deep sleep. Moving on, we've got 30 minutes, three times per week for 12 weeks, 31% decrease in insulin levels and a significant decrease in blood glucose levels. So it's really important to me to outline these different things here. We're talking about people who need growth hormone just for longevity. We're talking about people who could be diabetic, pre-diabetic. We have stuff there. We have people who are serious endurance athletes. One of those studies that I talked about with the endurance stuff worked exactly the same on both trained and untrained athletes. And because VO2 max is a um, big identifier of how long you're going to live, you can get some of it from just sitting in a sauna. Yeah. Sounds pretty nice. Yeah. So it's important, I think, to try to speak to everyone that's listening about what the reasons could be for doing this. And 31% decrease in 12 weeks of insulin levels, you know, with that correlation that extended out to blood glucose levels is just so incredibly important. And yep. we'll get back into a little bit more of the insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance in a bit. Um, I'm trying to think back to what episode that was. I'm assuming that it's part of both the move and fuel episodes. So 
If you go back to those two episodes, if you would like to listen to a little bit more of why we're trying to improve our insulin resistance or geez, our insulin sensitivity, we do not want to be resistant to insulin. (laughs) Um, You can go back and take a look at that. Next bullet point, 30 to 60 minute treatments during injury recovery, decreased muscle atrophy by 20 to 30% during times of inactivity. Um, This is actually something that um, goes along and actually has something to do with that same mTOR pathway that we talked about with the fasting. So um, two of the best things that you can do to hold on to muscle mass when you can't train are fasting and heat acclimation two really big things. And again, we're talking almost uh, exclusively about sauna use. We're talking about that heat acclimation. Moving on, men that stayed in a sauna to subjective exhaustion, which would just be the let let me out, had a 310% increase in norepinephrine. Um, Little bullet point list here, really important in, in vigilance, mood, focus, attention, pain, your metabolism, and your inflammation. And that's because it both works as a neurotransmitter and a hormone. So very important. A tenfold increase in prolactin, which is big with myelin growth, which is going to give you faster brain function. Um, so obviously two things that we want, neuroepinephrine yeah. Yeah. and prolactin, we want that. and a tenfold increase. Women who spent 20 minutes in a dry sauna twice per week saw an 86% increase in their epinephrine and the 510% increase in prolactin. And again, prolactin is the one where we're we're looking for that faster brain function. That seems unfair. Women got 20 minutes and the men had to stay in there until they tapped out. Hey, uh, you know, (laughs) they're, they're, it's, it's one of those things where I have noticed that I don't know why, I don't know if men are more willing to sign up for studies or they're sought out more for studies because they might be a bigger market for whatever they would try to sell with that. I'm not really sure, but I think a lot of, a lot of these studies where they sort of say there's this one and this one that are men and women is because there aren't as many women in these studies. And it could just be, I haven't read enough of them, but I really feel like there's something to the fact that women aren't studied as much as men. And I don't know why. I don't know if there's a reason. Um, I know that a lot of these studies, they like put flyers up at like in like colleges and yep. try to get college students to do it. And I can see how a male would be like, more oh, willing. you're going to give me 20 bucks. Yeah. And sure was a nude model for $12 <laughs> an hour in college. Um, I can see where that would be a little more, right. there would be a little more hesitation on a woman's part. Like, you, yeah. you want me to go where? Potentially a little look? smarter. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> that too. That too. So, it's time. We're going to get into the science a little bit here. Um, and you're, I'm going to have you be my mediator. Okay. So if I'm blabbing and I skipped something or it doesn't make sense and we're looking for a better explanation, you're going to stand up for the people. Um, (laughs) all right. So the way that I did this is I broke this up based on endurance, muscle growth, insulin sensitivity, recovery. I have a nice little part in there about rhabdo for all of our, all of our CrossFit people. Um, not saying that CrossFit gives people rhabdo. The only people that I know who have gotten rhabdo were doing CrossFit when they got it. Brian Decker. Alcoholics get rhabdo too. I don't know a lot of those. <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another community. Alcoholics, <laughs> you guys aren't, aren't as, uh, aren't as healthy as CrossFitters. I have a okay. feeling there's not a lot of alcoholics listening right now. That could be true. Or if there are, good luck on the recovery, man. Yeah. Or woman. Yeah. Not assuming your gender. Nope. All right. Endurance. Now this is not endurance training. This is heat acclimation completely separate. And that's important from your training that helps your endurance because what people it's, I equate it to um, when people thought that you should train at altitude and then the science said that you should sleep at altitude and train train at at sea level. level. It's the same with this concept of I'm going to move to Texas and train because this race that I'm doing is in the Mojave Desert or whatever. Whereas you should train in an environment that tests you some, but essentially gives you the best version of yourself. Because then you're, you're overextending your current capabilities. You rest, you regrow. That's kind of the concept behind any sort of training. 
Um, the, the heat separate from it is where that hormesis comes into play and that stressor is acute. It's not one big piece. Right. Um, so if someone is, you know, the thing that pops into my mind is, um, you know, the CrossFit games used to be in Carson, California and it's pretty damn hot. And every year it was super hot. Yeah. There's the psychological part, which we'll get into about, Oh, I've been here before. Um, but I would prefer that heat acclimation to happen for those athletes completely outside of their training. Yeah. So endurance effects. So one of the big things that's happening here is thermoregulation. And we talked about it a little before, and it just kind of makes sense to me that you would be able to regulate your temperature better the more that you're exposed to. Right. Because your body gets used to dealing with exactly temperatures that are more varied. Right. And in this case, it's much higher because of that hormetic effect, because it's acute, because we're doing it on purpose, because we're not also in the sauna, you know, doing bicep curls and push-ups and stuff like that. Um, and what happens there is that the sympathetic nervous system is activated, which increases blood flow to the skin. And that's going to cue our body to, to start sweating and start to up that sweat rate. And when we up the sweat rate, we lower our core temperature faster. So... And someone that was not dealing with this well would be the type of person that would go running and they'd get really hot and not sweat, not be able to lower their core temperature, really kind of burn up, then start sweating. Um, and there's actually a point where you would stop sweating. So what this is going to do is it's going to have you start sweating and lower your core temperature sooner. So you've got somebody that you're running with and you're actually much cooler than they are. And then it's going to extend it for a longer period of time. And that sweat rate and that sweat, you know, kind of control lowering your core temperature for sooner and longer is super important when it comes to endurance sports. You really want to be able to do that. Um, so that's sort of, you know, where, um, you know, that blood flow is going to come into play to try to get that sweat rate where we want it to be. Um, the increase in blood plasma and blood flow, essentially what that does is we go we make it easier on our heart and we have a reduced cardiovascular strain. And what that does is it lowers your heart rate for the exact same amount of work and effort that you were putting in. So now we've lowered our body temperature. We've lowered our heart rate. We're running at the same speed or faster. So yeah, you can definitely see where that would be beneficial. Where that would for be sure. beneficial. The, the next part is sort of where that glycogen piece comes from, where we talked about before that 40 to 50%. Um, decrease in what was used. The increased blood flow to the muscles brings more consistent glucose, fatty acids, and oxygen while simul simultaneously getting rid of the waste. Um, and that's the mechanism by which they think you're not pulling localized glycogen anymore. So if you have sort of, you know, when you eat food and you start to, to mobilize fat tissue, um, your bloodstream is carrying around the glucose, the fatty acids, and then the oxygen to fuel your muscles. Yep. And um, if it's doing that, it's going to pull less of that glycogen that's like localized just to, you know, your bicep or your, you know, legs or whatever, that right. kind of thing. Right. So that's where they sort of see that come from. And you can understand, again, we just talked about, you know, that increased blood flow, um, being really big on, on reducing the heart rate. So the, the sort of the two-part mechanism there is it doesn't take as much glycogen because your body's less strained. So that's, that's what would kind of uh, prolong that bonk effect that yes. you're talking about. Yep. And <clears throat> then the fact that sort of more of the ones that are already actively going through your bloodstream and not localized are available, Sure, which is, is really important. Um, the, the, Part about the lactate is really important as well because we do this a lot. Um, one example would be like we use the the voodoo floss to to wrap a certain area when we have an injury. We wrap it really tight so that the blood flow can get back in there and repair, but also because you know muscle contraction is what clears waste. So if we have increased blood flow, we have increased um, waste clearing. What's also great is there is heat acclimation is linked to lower lactate accumulation in the blood and muscle. So you're, you're essentially saying that you're both removing and creating less. So the load at which 
um, it's able to get rid of it. Like the rate at which it's able to get rid of it is lower and the amount that's actually being created is less. So that's kind of a double whammy when it comes to that. Yeah. We all know that pain. Oh yeah. It doesn't even matter if you're, you know, muscle failure or that like next day soreness or two days later soreness. Exactly. So the ability to both produce less and to get rid of it, obviously super important. This next part's kind of cool because EPO um, has had a uh, a moment in the spotlight with the Tour de France situation. Yeah, and I remember reading a study. It's been two or three years now where sauna use outperformed the injected EPO, and essentially what happens is um, EPO is the mechanism by which heat acclimation brings a higher red blood cell count because the body is responding to an increase in blood plasma. So we've used the heat acclimation to create a higher blood plasma and your body's going to say, okay, we're going to use natural EPO to get our red blood cell count up. It's like natural blood doping. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And to be honest, there would be no way for any of this stuff to work if it wasn't natural. Right. In some form. Right, right. Like testosterone is what steroids are. Yeah. We obviously know that testosterone yep. is also endogenous. Human growth hormone. Endogenous. Like, exactly. Yep. So these things are are super important. You're just increasing the body's mechanism to perform. Essentially. Exactly. Yeah. This next one um, is something that will be uh, anyone that's addicted to exercise and sort of that endorphin release um, post-workout for a lot of people or then what's called the runner's high. Anybody who's ever gone out for a run and the first 10 minutes have been hell, and then for some reason you start cruising. I can say I've never gotten a runner's high in my life. Okay. so <laughs> Too heavy for that effect, I think. I decided randomly in like, I don't know, 2011 or 12 to run a 10K. I had never run more than a 5K. I don't it was at night too. I just was like I've never run a 10k. And the the thing is if you know me that's like what would possess you? <laughs> There's no 1 second 10k. No. 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 And I prefer my workouts to be 1 second long, <laughs> especially if I'm going to show off. So I decided to run the 10k and I had the loop all picked out and I was in really rough shape for like probably 3k, somewhere in that range. 3 to 4k. Shin splints Low back was tight, breathing like I had never <laughs> put the feet to the pavement one time in my whole life. And then the breeze started to hit me in a certain way, and I noticed like the stars were out because it was super dark. I was running down Allen Ave, like out towards Falmouth, and like I don't know, I was just like, "What is happening?" And then from there until I got back, which was another thirty some minutes, I felt nothing. Huh. I felt absolutely nothing. And what's happening there is a beta endorphin release, which is actually our body's natural painkiller system that has like an opioid-like effect that's happening within the body. Um, The only thing that's better at producing that than exercise that they found is heat acclimation. So this ability to go there and to release that and to be ready for it is very closely related between these two. And what's cool is exercise and heat acclimation have a lot of similar benefits, but you would assume that if exercise is sort of your game or your sport or your end goal, some part of it is that heat acclimation is going to be like sort of like that supplement, that thing that helps you kind of cruise through all this stuff. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to get into it later, but an added benefit other than it being supplemental to like all of the function of the body is feels good. Correct. Like it feels good to get out of a sauna and just be sweating and just like yeah. ultra relaxed. Yeah. It, and that's, and, and, you know, I, I didn't want to jump into it then, but when you said like, it feels really good, yeah. that's what a lot of people say when they come down from a hard workout, but the effect of this is, is greater. Right. So it's the exact same thing at play, but, um, the effect is greater with way less work. You exactly. just sit there. And that pain and discomfort is actually also a mechanism where your body's trying to be like, hey, stop that. <laughs> it thinks something could be really wrong. Right. Like and it thinks you're on fire. Right. Yeah. But then we have this evolutionary biology coming in and saying, we need this endorphin release. We need this opioid-like effect to grow. 
right. to, to get the hell out of here. Yep. So I don't know how many years that took. I can imagine it was a pretty thousands long and thousands, yeah, I'm yeah, sure. It took a very long period of time for that to happen, but you can understand why your body would both fight it and then learn to go with it. Yeah. It makes sense. Yep. So for all of all of my meatheads out there, we just went through all that endurance stuff. Maybe you're excited, maybe you're not. Maybe you think that you can go sit in a sauna and not do your endurance work. Um, I would that's, say that's, that's what I was thinking the whole time. You yeah. Were talking, actually, you guys have seen, and if you haven't seen it, check out our Instagram or check out the, the move podcast, but that seven day Episode check six. sheet, I'm telling you guys it's worth it. Those, that energy system does so much for people, even tracing all the way back to like sprinting. It really works and helps. It's really good for you. Talked about before, all-cause mortality is reduced by VO2 max going up. We all got to do it. I only put it in there once a week. If it's your sport, then it's going to be the two or three times a week as we have in there. But um, we can all move at a just past conversational pace for 40 to 60 minutes once a week. It's not that bad. We can do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's doable. But- we're moving on to uh, meathead zone here, and the the topic of the day with in relation to the muscle is just hypertrophy, and the basic science behind hypertrophy is your body winning the battle between protein synthesis and protein breakdown. So we're just looking for a plus minus here. Yep. We don't even need to know how it works. Protein synthesis through amino acid uptake and exercise and all these things, but then protein breakdown because you are breaking down the muscle when you exercise, you're atrophying when you're not moving. When we pull oxygen into our muscles, we need to pull oxygen in. Like if you tried to hold your breath and do weightlifting, you'd realize pretty quickly that your muscles need oxygen. It'd be an an easy way to figure that out. Um, That creates oxidative damage to the tissue, which is protein breakdown. So we're always fighting this battle of you can see how you could overtrain, how you could train yourself into not getting any hypertrophy, which is just um, we're growing the size of the muscle cell. Right. So two of the best things that you can do for that ratio are lift weights and heat acclimation. Wow. So we're, we're back there again. And heat acclimation reduces the amount of protein degradation through three main concepts. The first one is heat shock proteins, which are released through heat acclimation. Easiest way to think about this, guys, is heat, shock, protein. So we had the heat shock. We now have protein. We want protein synthesis. It helps with that. I think that's simple enough to, to keep it there. Yeah. If you want to take a deep dive into heat shock proteins, they're actually really cool. And there are specific ones. This is heat shock protein 70, which they're, they're noticing in like, I think it's, worms, worms and something else is this huge biomarker for how long you live. Um, there's, there's all kinds of different stuff on this. And again, really easy to take this dive in on YouTube. Oh yeah. YouTube yeah. is the easiest way for me. Um, Dr. Rhonda Patrick talks about it a lot. Yes. On, she on does sound my fitness on yes. YouTube. Yeah. And, and her, her stuff, um, her website, Rhonda, I know you're listening and you're a big fan of project. <laughs> is a little confusing if you sign up for free and then go to the downloads thing, it'll let you download like PDFs. It's very odd because if you click news, it's like, it looks like Reddit. I usually just go to her YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah. You, the YouTube yeah. stuff, the YouTube stuff is really good. Um, she does a really good job on there. And if you go, there's, there's a bunch of gateways to get into Rhonda. Like I think Joe Rogan does a really good job of it because he's more, on our side of like, we want to know what this means yeah, yeah kind yeah. of a thing. He's also really simple and asks like simple people questions. Exactly. Which is good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. Um, heat acclimation reduces the amount of protein degradation through growth hormone. And just intuitively, we can kind of understand growth hormone and what it's associated with, how that would work. Um, there's kind of a funny thing with, with growth hormone. People say that it shouldn't be in the same class as steroids because it's not inherently anabolic, but it's anti-catabolic, which is the Ooh, that's a little confusing. opposite of anabolic is catabolic. So if right. it's an- essentially what it's doing here is making sure that that protein synthesis is chugging. Happening. 
Yeah, yeah, suppressing that oxidative damage, suppressing the protein breakdown. We're winning that battle of that plus minus that we talked about. Right, right. Um, so it won't grow your muscle for you. But it'll stop your muscles from not growing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it's very, it's, it's kind of interesting there. Um, and then last but not least, heat acclimation reduces the amount of protein degradation through insulin sensitivity. And that one to me was the one that was right off the bat, the most simple because insulin sensitivity allows you to bring energy and amino acids and glucose into your muscle cells. Like when we're insulin sensitive, that was the whole point of how this whole system was supposed to work. The insulin was supposed to show up to bring that stuff to our cells for energy, right. not for love handles. So um, insulin sensitive means you're sensitive to the effects, which is good. Insulin resistant means your body does not know where to put this. It's sort of the insulin's happening too often. That's kind of the kind of the concept there. Um, so that those are really kind of the three main things that are happening with, you know, the muscle hypertrophy and sort of, again, winning that battle between protein synthesis and protein breakdown. Um, and if you do want to take a further deep dive into that, you can sort of go down the rabbit hole of oxidative stress and what it does to your to your muscle tissue to have the oxygen pulled in. Um how the heat shock proteins can fight that off, all this different stuff. Yep. But essentially what we're doing here is we're almost writing like a pros and cons list and we want the, the pros list to be higher. Right. And what we're doing with the heat acclimation is we're providing all three of those things. Moving on to the insulin sensitivity itself. Um, this is important because of the statistics we talked about back, you know, in the, in the fuel episode of, you know, a hundred million Americans are episode either, five. Yeah. Are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. So there's probably a pretty good chance that we could convince a loved one or a client to get in a sauna prior to convincing them to, you know, hit the pavement. Sure. Yep. Kind of a thing. So that could be one of those places where you could find that win. Sort of like, you know, we talk about the the exercise bike being a place where you can start because it holds your body weight, yep. but you're still having that movement there. And, you know, we touched on it in the in the part about the the hypertrophy, but the insulin sensitivity um, increases protein synthesis by stimulating amino acid uptake into cellular cellular muscles. And that's kind of the concept behind we take the you know, the protein shake post-workout, the protein itself has an insulogenic effect. The exercise itself has that effect. And again, it brings that to where it's supposed to go right. as opposed to filling other cells and overflowing other cells to go to adipose tissue. That's sort of a, all we can do. We can fill muscle cells or we can add, you know, new tissue in the form of, of fat on the body, which, which we don't want to do. Um, that is going to deliver that large decrease in protein degradation. Um, and then it provides an increase in GLUT4, which I will not skip over that, which delivers glucose to the skeletal muscle. The opposite would be um, the insulin resistance where the big issue is delivery to adipose tissue over muscle tissue. So GLUT4 was actually that discovery and that science was behind. I know a lot of people are familiar with uh, carb backloading. So this concept of how do we make these these um, receptors come to the surface of our muscles? How do we eat this food? And and it was framed in the way of how do I eat what I want to eat, like that kind of thing. Um, and we've we've I think we've evolved that conversation in the right direction. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like okay, so that 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 insulin sensitivity provides the increase in GLUT four, which helps deliver glucose to skeletal muscle again and not into adipose tissue. Right. And I think it's, I think it's important to understand that a lot of these, a lot of these athletes that are depending on glucose for endurance work, they're going so hard that there's a lot of anaerobic going on there. And if they have to use less of it, and we can deliver it better from food to our muscles, then that means we don't need as much. And if we don't need as much, we can remain more insulin sensitive. 
and we can always sort of use what's going into our bodies, whether we're talking about um, making sure we fuel for exercise or we're talking about this scenario where we have, you know, I hate the term cheat meal, but for lack of a better term, if we're constantly more insulin sensitive and we don't push past that boundary and become insulin resistant with relying on it all of the time, then those types of meals aren't going to have much of an effect on us. Right. Our body's just going to say, Hey, we're insulin resistant. We exercise, we fast, we have heat exposure. And if every once in a while the timing's a little off and we're just trying to, you know, have fun with our friends, then it's not a big deal. Right. But we have to set ourselves up with these other scenarios where we're trying as hard as we can to increase that insulin sensitivity. The next topic is just a really quick one. Um, the exact same anti-degradation pathway helps you keep skeletal muscle while you're inactive. So miss or not misuse, um, not using lack your muscles, of lack of use. Yes. Not using your muscles is going to cause protein degradation. I mean, atrophy of someone who just doesn't move is pretty easy yeah. to understand. Yeah, yeah. If you've um, ever had like a cast on a, a limb, exactly. you've seen muscle yeah. atrophy. Unfortunately, my, the first thing that comes to mind is my um, grandfather, who I didn't know that well because he lived kind of further away, when he got sick and was in the hospital, like the dude was jacked like for his whole life. And it wasn't that long in a hospital bed right. where he was like gone gone. Yeah. It was like, whoa, yeah, yeah. there's like the muscle just completely disappeared. So if we understand that we can mitigate what's going on with that oxidative damage and the, you know, the lack of use with the muscles, then we can use that again in terms of recovery to hold on to that muscle when we're not training. So if you're that person that's addicted to exercise and thinks you need to train all of the time, um, we're really helping that plus minus. And then if you're injured, that's huge. Right. So and that's, that's all thanks to that mechanism of the incre increased growth factor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's just really about creating that scenario again, where that plus minus is exactly where we need it to be. Even though we pull out the huge pro of exercise. Next part here is, um, about rhabdo. Um, essentially what rhabdo is, is it's a release of myoglobin into the bloodstream causing potential kidney failure. Any amount getting there is not good. A huge amount is the one that's going to cause kidney failure. That one where, you know, uh, pukey, the clowns hooked up to the dialysis machine, <laughs> that whole can of worms. So the heat shock proteins can mitigate the effects and actually break that myoglobin down. Like it's almost like the myoglobin is wherever the tissue is that's damaged and it's running to your kidney and the heat shock proteins are going to like catch it along the way and break it down and say, no rhabdo. <laughs> so the scenario is not great, but these heat shock proteins and what's actually happening is it's a bit more localized. So you have the heat shock proteins and the muscle tissue damage happening together. Yep. So, Essentially, rhabdo is a huge deficit in that plus minus. Yeah. yeah. It's just literally... All muscle breakdown, yeah, essentially. Just, just yeah, just shredding your muscle without having some sort of, you know, you know, detach from the bone or serious. It's like on a cellular level. It's on that level of like, you know, we do break our muscles down to build them back up, but this is breaking them down way too much. Yep. And, and the two things for anybody that's not familiar with this that cause it the most are... Um, kind of lowering yourself. Like it happens a lot with people that do pull-ups that do the negative really slow. Um, you're, you're holding on to your body weight and you're creating that time under tension. I mean, I can just in my mind lower myself from a pull-up bar and think about how that would be bad on my forearm and bicep like yeah. tissues as opposed to, you know, following a more natural like um, stretch cycle, stretch shortening cycle that you would in exercise. And then there's always, you always want to bring up the GHD. If you are, <laughs> if you, if anybody decides to join a gym that has a glute ham developer, um, there's a, a movement where you essentially fold your body backwards in a 90 and then come all the way back up the 270 degrees <laughs> to touch the pad and there's so much muscle tissue in um, what Peto would call your uh, dick lines. <laughs> Those muscles that go sort of, you know, the swimmers have the crazy. Deep v. Yeah, the deep V. Um, 
excuse my uh, inappropriate nature. We are misfits. So <laughs> that there's so much muscle tissue there. And you think about how often you're either upright or unfortunately closed in the other direction yep. where your knee or your femur is what creates the 90 degree angle. We're talking about a 90 degree angle in the opposite direction, like literally bending over backwards. The only reason you can do it is because you're hanging, yep. your feet are strapped in. And that is very, very potent for rhabdo. A lot of musculature involved. Yeah. yeah. And that range of motion is just wrong if you're not the type of person that can do like the back bend of the crab walk or, you know, things like that. So um, just don't do that. <laughs> we'll just go there and say that, you know, work yourself up to the those ranges of motion. But Drew, it was in my L1. Yeah. Um, so we are <laughs> on to, and this is actually, I'm not going to lie, talking th- this if I was to do this by myself, holy shit, but I feel like I'm having a conversation with you is making this a lot easier. Like I thought this was going to be like, like pulling teeth, trying to like get out what, but I feel like I'm trying to convince you of something and that's making it, that's making it easier. It's working. I'm planning on firing up the sauna tonight. So, um, we're, we're down to the brain now. And so many of us are obsessed with those physical gains because, we can show them off on Instagram or, you know, maybe you're meeting up with your college friends this summer at the lake and you pop that shirt off and I get it. Everybody gets it. But the brain, I mean, think about how often you should be focused on making sure your brain works really well. Like that's the money maker right there. Yeah, literally. Like, for sure. Whether it's, you know, making sure that your brain, you know, we talked before about how a lot of these effects are, you know, have to do with mood. We could just talk, be talking about your well-being and not just, you know, your work performance or whatever it is. There's so much um, attached to this. And, you know, we, we covered the neuroepinephrine and prolactin increases in the number section, um, which are important for all those reasons that we listed off. Anytime you have, you know, one thing that's associated with both neurotransmitter and hormone um, that's doing that many mechanisms. You want to do everything you can to make it, you know, part of what's going on. The benefits don't end there though. It also increases the expression of brain derived neurotropic factor. If you want to search for this stuff, just search for BDNF. That's sort of the easiest thing to go into. Um, and there's actually a, a sort of a symbiosis with exercise. BDNF works really well when you are both exercising on a regular basis and doing some heat acclimation work. Um, and BDNF is responsible for creating new blood cells and repairing existing neurons. Brain cells. New brain cells. Did I say blood cells? You did say blood I cells. I did say blood That's cells. okay though. New brain cells, which is important. Sherb, if you're listening to this, I know you <laughs> lost some a few years back. BDNF is responsible for creating new brain cells and repairing existing neurons. And the, the repercussions of that extend into another hot topic, you know, of our times is neuroplasticity and long-term memory. So you see the, um, you know, people play the games, the mind games for the neuroplasticity, yep. just, you know, the, the concept of, of brain exercise versus body exercise right. and brain drive neurotropic factor is really, really important for this stuff. And it is, um, at its best via exercise and heat acclimation. So when paired together, when paired together, this, this was definitely the one when I went down this rabbit hole, it seemed to me like it almost needed to be that relationship. But if I can't imagine somebody listening to this podcast and taking our advice so far as to find a sauna, that's not exercising. Yeah. Yeah. But Unless they have like super easy access to it or something, but yeah. Right. Um, But if that's the case, then, then you just use, and again, I always circle back to whether it's a client or whether it's, you know, a family member or a friend, find your in. And if your in is the sauna and then you say, Hey, a lot of these same benefits come from exercise. Why don't we try going for a walk a couple times a week? Like you can kind of get that out there. So now we got to talk a little bit about the how to like, None of these studies are the exact same duration, exact same temperature. Most of them were dry sauna. That was one of the things where I'm sort of connecting the dots on that. Um, and again, my personal N equals one experiment says that when you bring the steam in 
to the situation, it makes it harder to sit in there. So yeah, I can just it really does. I can just guess how, you know, getting up into some of the studies, 176 degrees, you know, really hot. If you had that steam going in there, it would be hard to breathe. The thing with the steam is it makes it feel like it's way more than right. 130, 170, whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. As soon as it, as soon as that steam hits the air, you're right. You it can't feels, breathe. You're getting sweatier. It's, right. Yeah. The right amount of it feels great. I mean, you can feel like, oh, yeah. like your skin feels good and yeah. like your lungs feel good because, you know, a lot of what is associated with the climates that have sauna is dry weather. So actually breathing like, like liquid air, like into your lungs, you know, you guys know what I mean. Scientific term, liquid air, um, into your lungs just feels good. So the correlations that I can draw and where we can start are by trying to find a dry sauna and trying to go in as often as we can. And there's an asterisk here that I'll get to for sort of like a 20 to 40 minute range seems to be what makes the most sense. And if you need that cooling period, a lot of those growth hormone studies were with the cooling period. So you're sort of getting that contrast in there, which is really good for muscle cells. So the, the, the asterisk is start adding and subtracting like you would with any other stressor. People get obsessed with this stuff and they take supplements that they don't know have a hormetic effect. They take, they do, they exercise, they do the sauna They do the cold exposure. They do all of these things in conjunction with each other. And it's no longer a hormetic effect. It's something your body's immune system is going to try to battle and it's going to wear you down. So essentially the, what we want with the hormesis and, you know, with tapping into our epigenetics is stuff that's doable for our body. And then as we become more resilient, we can add more in and everybody understands that from a exercise perspective. So you just got to trace it back to the sauna. Don't start going in the sauna like those people that got the 16 time growth hormone (laughs) increase. Two hours a day, seven days a week. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Start with that 20 to 40 minute range, you know, separate it by at least one day and just see what happens. Once or twice a week. Yeah. Test, retest, you know, do the sauna more often on a week if you have like instant access to it. Um, I was actually surprised you can buy them brand new on Wayfair for 1600 bucks, a four person sauna with like the infrared panels. Wow. Um, I don't know how much shipping costs. I don't know if that's free. (laughs) Freight. And I've also heard that Craigslist is a sauna graveyard because the husband buys it, puts it in the garage, never uses it. And then they can't, you know, winter time rolls around. You can't get your car in the garage (laughs) or they bought a tractor or who knows what, you know, we're from Maine. So we're very used to the, like the husband with the tractor and the snowmobiles and the sauna and the elliptical machine and the treadmill (laughs) and all that stuff that no one ever uses. So I have heard that I haven't looked myself, but I've heard that Craigslist is a graveyard and we're talking like hundreds of dollars for things that would cost thousands. Yeah. I mean, if you're handy enough, it's just a wooden box with a heater. Yeah. So if you can get the heater on its own for cheaper and you get together. It's usually cedar, right? Usually cedar on the inside because it it handles the moisture moisture a lot better. Yeah. But it's just a box as big as you need it and then the heating element. Yeah. So I sort of dug into the one and, uh, in Iceland and they, all they had essentially was just the foil insulation board mm-hmm. gives you that vapor barrier yep. and then the cedar right under it. And if you had a dry sauna, you wouldn't have to deal with the, the, the vapor barrier as much. Right. I think you'd still want it. I mean, yeah. it's a sweat box yeah. <laughs> essentially, yeah. but it wouldn't be as much of a factor. Um, and then it's important to add in that a lot of these studies were post-workout people were exercising and then they were going into the sauna. Now, is there a specific time window that would be required for the post-workout? Like, is it 30 minutes, an hour? Is it after it's, you've processed the workout and you're back to, you know? So for me, it makes a lot of sense why it works. It works because, um, and this is the, the same reason why we don't recommend people do their post-workout shake directly following. You're still stressed out. Yeah. And oh, you're yeah. still, if you're still stressed out, but not too far. It's still a hormetic effect and we're still getting growth hormone release, all of these different things. So in my mind, we're combining like sort of a low effort activity with extending that period of time for longer. 
So we're sort of like, it, it would almost be like you're running to exhaustion and then you're like, well, I'm going to go sit in the sauna now and extend this, you know, a hormetic effect for another gotcha. period of time, uh, for an extended period of time. So we're going through that for longer. Um, that's why it makes so much sense to me. The tissues are ready for it. You're already warm. So it's not like a shock to the system. So in those studies, they literally were exercising and then walking into a sauna. So if you're at like a YMCA or something yeah. and there's a sauna in the pool room, hit yep. your workout, wait five, 10 minutes and then hit the sauna. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, really dry sauna post-workout helps 20 to 40 minutes, add and subtract that test retest mentality of, um, I'm not going to add 37 new things to my life this week to see if I can make them all work. It's going to be really hard to know what works. And again, you could stress your body out to the point where, um, you're not doing so hot. And the last thing that I want to talk about is just that intuitive side of when things work for you, um, let them work for whatever damn reason. Like if you feel better with the cold shower, if you feel better with getting into the sauna, all of this stuff is nice for us to understand what we're trying to accomplish. And if we have a specific goal that putting more of an emphasis on heat acclimation could help, but man, like there's just something about the type of person that can handle hot, that can handle cold, that can meditate, that can push through when they're exercising. You're resilient in a way that I don't think could be scientifically measured. And I know that a lot of it is the neuroepinephrine and whatever, but I'm still woo-woo enough to attach <laughs> that like soul piece to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you know, the cold shower specifically, but also the exercise, they kind of like feed into one another because when you hit a hard workout, specifically my frame of reference right now is like a CrossFit workout. You hit a hard one and then the next day you see another hard one on the board. You have that last one to reference and be like, eh, I guess it can't be that bad. Or right. even if it is that bad, I've done it before and survived so right. I can do this again. Yeah. Cold shower is the same thing. Yep. You crank that water to cold and it's like, oh, this is this sucks a lot. But it's like, ah, I did it before. I mean, you know, I could do it again. Right. So it just kind of puts your mind into that place of like, I'm a survivor. I can handle this. Yeah. It makes me better. Like, and, and I think that extends out to places in your life that aren't quite as measurable. Yeah. So like for sure for me, I put more responsibility on myself to be able to handle stressful situations, knowing that I've had some sort of measurable stress output from something else. Yeah. Like I can handle this. This is not as bad as the things that I do to myself on purpose mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Yeah. And for, for, for me, that's, that's so important. You know, if you, if you read the, the morning meditations on Instagram, there's just this, this thing about accepting responsibility for just everything that happens in your life, because who the hell else is going to, right. who else can, right. and the more resilient you are both within your, you know, body chemistry and all of this, the more resilient you can force yourself to be, you can almost prove yourself to yourself by doing all of these things. And, you know, having specific things to do allow you, you know, I call it, I, I joke around with a lot of the people here, it's adversity training. So anytime somebody says something, complains about something to me, I say, good, it's adversity training. Right. It's like, this isn't so bad. This isn't, you know, you found out that you have cancer or whatever. This is like, you know, the supplier didn't have this thing. They said right. they were going to, someone lied to me, you know, whatever. It's yeah. like, I mean- you're just learning that you can deal with it if you take that mindset and go into it. I mean, the only way to get better is to challenge yourself. You exactly. Know, you're never going to grow or get better if everything's easy. Exactly. If you go to work and it's easy, going to work's not a job. No. You know, it, no. you're only getting better if you're being challenged in, in any facet. And I'm, I'm working currently on both an article and an episode um, that outlines what it is to not be a drone. Okay. And... Okay. That's like a campaign I want to go on, not a drone. Like <laughs> we don't coast through anything. And that's what, that's what I think of when I think of, you know, the, oh, it's everybody else's fault. Or like I have an easy job because it just allows me to float through everything. Right. Um, and that's, man, that's the first thing that comes to mind is like, yeah, you know, attacking stuff more often is more challenging, but that's the only way to get the reward. Yeah. It's the only way to go there. So it's the only way to grow. Hashtag not a drone. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was 
Part one, Hot and Cold, Volume One. Um, I would love your feedback on this style of episode, digging a little bit further. I feel better about it already than I did when I was looking at it. I think it went. I think it went pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is going to be access to Asada. Exactly. And yeah. You know, everybody has access to Google. Just Google public sauna in your neighborhood yeah. or whatever. And if you're handy or you want to like go in on one with someone yeah. and you know it can go in a gym somewhere. I mean, barrel saunas can go outside, like a lot of different options here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, get that tribe mentality and get enough people together where you're trying to figure out as a group, you know, can we get some sort of group discount on a membership? Can we build one together? Can we yeah. buy one together? Yeah. Whatever it is. I'm jealous of you European listeners. It seems like there's saunas everywhere in Europe, Iceland specifically. So yeah. I don't know if it's just the Nordic countries, but it's, they seem it's, to be super it's, prevalent. It's um, huge in Scandinavian countries. So yeah. Iceland, Norway, yeah. Sweden, you know, all of those countries are Lucky really, dogs. really big into it. And it's crazy. You like, they are so healthy and yep. for the simplest reasons, mm-hmm. they're like obsessed with spending time with their family, yep. like like around a fire instead of a television. They eat wild caught fish. They love being outside they're in the outside winter. They don't the have time. any. They don't have any sunshine, and they have low depression rates. Well, we just we just got back from Iceland a couple of weeks ago, which is why this is super like yeah. front of mind right now. But we were driving around literally in almost whiteout conditions through Reykjavik and there's people jogging yeah. in large groups yeah. through the city, yeah. like going out for a jog in the middle of a snowstorm. The alternative is not to like ever jog. So yeah. they're like, well, I mean, yeah. hell, you could get a snow squall any time of year yeah. in Iceland. Put their jacket and their hat on and they run out. Mm-hmm. They run outside. It's yep. crazy. So it's like one of those things where we make the excuse of, you know, the weather here in Maine, but damn, they they got some weather over there especially yeah. when it comes to like sunshine and whatnot. And they, yeah. they're still motoring through, which is awesome. Learn from the Icelanders folks. For real. I can't wait to get out there. I, mean, I know we're doing an Iceland rant now, but I can't wait to get <laughs> out there in the summer. I can't wait. Those pictures of the South coast. Are you kidding me? Dude, yeah. It'll happen. I can't wait. Yep. That's going to be a misfit project. A little, you know, little, little docu living out there, making the coffee on a cliff. <laughs> I'm never coming back, by the way. That'll be the last episode. Um, Okay. So as always, um, it would be a massive help to get any five-star reviews from people that think we deserve it on iTunes. That's going to seat us higher. It's going to allow us to keep doing what we're doing. We are at the misfit.project on Instagram. That's where we are most active. That's where we are going to be more active coming up. We're going to do some video content for you guys, which I'm really excited about. Um, misfitproject.com misfitproject.com nice little blog post associated with each episode um, Misfit Project on Facebook which I feel like Facebook's sort of we're there we're there yeah. you can find us there um, we post you know if, if Facebook's your thing we always post the uh, the podcast episode and you can, there's a click through on that um, and then you know if you're not a social media person and you want to get in touch, the direct message on at the misfit.project is great, but info at misfitproject.com would be the email address. Love the questions. Um, a lot of people out there asking to help with the misfit project. I hope that one day we find a way to get <laughs> you guys to help. As of right now, uh, we're two dudes with like 10 other jobs and we're just trying to make sure that we get an episode most weeks out to you guys with some awesome information it will grow. Um, we will be able to ask for help one day. But for now, we all we can say is thank you. Keep listening. Keep yes, telling people you, that's the you, best thing. You. That's the best thing that you guys can do. Um, I think that's it. I think so. Until part two. Don't talk about it. Be about it. Thanks for listening, guys.